Welcome to BIV Today. We are the daily business news podcast from Business and Vancouver Newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. And coming up next month, Business in Vancouver presents the 2018 Top 100 Fastest Growing Companies Reception. That's on October 4th. This networking event is going to highlight the achievements of companies across British Columbia that have shown remarkable growth over the last five years. Later on today, online gaming, it's exploding across Canada, across a very wide range of demographics. That's according to the latest research from PayPal. So our guest, Melissa O'Malley, she serves as a director of global initiatives for PayPal. She's going to explain how this is opening up new revenue opportunities. Then Triumph Innovations has struck a deal with Canadian nuclear laboratories around the commercial production of a rare medical isotope that could help with new cancer treatments. Catherine Hayashi, she is the CEO of the commercialization arm of Canada's Particle Accelerator Center, and she's going to discuss the potential this has to enable groundbreaking treatments. But first, here's Melissa O'Malley. Online gaming, it's been exploding across Canada. It's according to a new survey commissioned by PayPal. Joining us today to talk about what this means for finding new ways to monetize within the industry, it is Melissa O'Malley. She's Director of Global Initiatives over at PayPal. Melissa, thanks for calling us today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So I got to ask you this before we uh, go on with this conversation, but uh, are you a gamer? Do you have any favorite uh, games that you like to play online? All right. Honest truth, Pokemon Go, level 37. Fair enough. Wow. (laughs) I'm impressed by that. Uh, But let me ask you this, though. Uh, Like, and you know, if you talk to people about Pokemon Go like three years ago, I mean, they they wouldn't know what you're talking about. They would have recognized, you know, Pokemon, but that was kind of an old Game Boy game. And now online gaming has really taken off here. And and I wonder if you can kind of show me how these new survey results that you've uncovered uh, just really shows the way that habits are changing when it comes to online gaming, especially here in Canada. Sure. So, you know, I think when most people think about people gaming, they think about young kids sitting in a basement with their console, um, you know, way back in the day playing things like Atari and, and things that are now considered, you know, like vintage games. Um but actually, the modern gamer is far older, um, and they are taking their gaming on the go. Um, you know, what we found, especially in Canada, I think you might be surprised, 55% of the gamers in Canada are women, and they're about 35 years old. Uh, and they're not sitting in a basement. Uh, they are gaming on their smartphones. So that's actually where gaming is moving to today. Um, smartphones are the device of choice in Canada. 66% of people that we talk to, when they're gaming, they're doing on a smartphone. And that's really trailed by things like desktops or, or laptops. Um, you know, and it varies. You know, women prefer really to play on smartphones versus men. Um, so there's also a gender, a difference in gender there. And I think maybe part of that is, you know, people are looking for these areas and small snippets of their life where they can just find a little bit, bit of relaxation. So maybe it's on their commute to work and they're on a bus and, you know, they're like me at a bus stop and they want to, you know, catch them all with Pokemon Go or they just want to do a puzzle game or something like that. So I think the landscape of gaming is really changing, not only in the types of games that people are interested in, but when they're doing it and, and how much time they're spending doing it. 
Well, it makes me think, I mean, I'm somebody who grew up in the 1990s when console gaming was the big thing. You, you, you go do this with your friends. And so I'm wondering if we were looking at the demographics here. And as you said, like women make up like a huge portion of this. Are, are we kind of, I guess, looking at a lot of these 90s kids that are, you know, outgrowing their old N64 or, or PlayStation and they, they've now migrated to these ubiquitous, you know, phone devices that they have wherever they go, every part of their life at this point? Sometimes it depends on the types of games that they're playing. PC and console gamers that we spoke to, they, they do play longer. So they pay for about two hours a session, whereas a mobile gamer will play for about an hour and a half a session. So even like depending upon if you're a console gamer or if you're a mobile gamer, it's going to depend upon the types of gaming that you're doing and how long you can spend doing it. Um, I think Part of that is also the types of games. So in Canada, action games are very popular uh, for people to play. We kind of look at the different types of games that people are doing. Um, but it's 52 hours a month for people in Canada. That's what they're, the average uh, amount of time that people are, are spending gaming, um, you know, whether it's, it's on a console or, um, or, or on a phone. Um, but 45% of Canadians are playing online or mobile games every day. So it's become part of the everyday life of people. It's part. It's a huge, you know, piece of entertainment for them. I think part of that is because it's also become much more accessible. You know, you don't need a super expensive specialized console like you did back in the day when you started gaming. Um, it's essentially anywhere you go. You can have a console if you want to, um, you know, play with somebody else sitting next to you. You can also just pull out your phone or your tablet, whether that means you're going to play, you know, Scrabble or you're going to play uh another type of game. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you go back to the console days and yeah, you're investing in the system. You'd also either go down to the blockbuster. I, I know I'm dating myself with that reference and, and maybe uh, rent some games or else you just have to put down a big chunk of change and buy it right there. You talk to a lot of the gaming developers that are uh, up in Vancouver and a lot of them are focused on different ways of monetization with regards to maybe there's the uh, the freemium model and you can take it from there. But I mean, what are you finding out? What are you uncovering about how much people are maybe willing to spend when it comes to their gaming experience? Um, yeah, there's some interesting. So I don't know. How, how much do you think a Canadian is spending a, a year on, on online games? It's uh, just on the game, not on the in-game content. Just on the. OK, so I would say maybe 50 or 60 dollars. 200. 200. Okay. I am not within that demographic. On <laughs> wow. Okay. You know, and, and for in-game content, so they're buying skins or coins or what have you, it's about 128. So it's a pretty, pretty big chunk of change when you think about just from an entertainment perspective. Um, but I also looked at, um, so you talked about, you know, you have to, you have to go out and you have to go to the blockbuster or wherever to go buy, you know, to go buy the game. We, um, we talked to people about why they're downloading games digitally. Um, and essentially people don't want to have to wait to play it. That's the biggest driver. 45% of people said, I don't want to have to wait to play it. That trumps, you know, game box clutter. It's cheaper to buy a game, you know, a physical copy. So people, people, first of all, they, they don't want to have to play it. And then um, the second most cited reason was they don't want to have to leave the comfort of their home. <laughs> it's that convenience so, factor. Um, that... They want convenience and they don't want to have to get out and go somewhere. <laughs> and, and they're willing to do that far more than they're saying, I just want a cheap game. 
Well, I, I think it's interesting uh, with, with your own expertise over at PayPal, because I, I guess maybe hangups can come with regards to payments. And I'm wondering what you guys are finding with regards to, I guess, just that payment experience if we're talking about monetization here. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we have, we sort of both, you know, merchants, so merchants in, in the digital game space and also consumers. So when we do big studies like this, we want to look at, you know, what's the opportunities, for example, for publishers or developers or content creators or consumers that are not only um, players, but also streamers. Because part of that is we want to make it as pleasant experience for people to just get to the game that they want to do. And when we look at information like this, you know, we look at what's part of that payment experience, what's getting people to stop, you know, or what's getting people to, to, uh, to say, yes, I want to I wanna buy this. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because people, as I said, they just want to be able to play their, their games as soon as they can. But they go to a variety of different um, uh, storefronts to play. So there's a lot of complexity in terms of where they're going to get the games. Um, they're willing to spend a lot of money but they don't want to have um, a troublesome checkout experience. I mean, one consistent need across all game purchases we found is a seamless payment experience. Um, when we talked to people about why they would walk away from an online sale, um, we looked at when, is it entering a billing address, entering credit card details, but you know, trying to remove a lot of that issue from the payment experience is really important because people just wanna be able to play their games as, as quickly as they can, um, you know, and we looked at it from our business perspective in terms of the growth opportunity. It's about, we processed $12 billion in online game purchases last year. So it's a significant amount of money that people are spending and we see it growing, you know, in our business alone, 23% year over year. So trying to make that um, experience as easy as possible for people to just be able to, to get back into the game. They don't have to store their credit card information. Um, they just want to enter their username and the password and start playing. Yeah, I, I don't want to bring down the conversation at all. I just remember my last experience uh, with, with regards to paying a, a big chunk of change for a game is when Nintendo wanted to release like this uh, Mario Go game and uh, mm -hmm. had an easy payment experience. But honestly, I, I think uh, there's a lot of criticisms about the game itself. I, I thought the game was pretty lame. Like I, I paid like 10 bucks for this. And uh, it wasn't a great game, and it made me it kind of put me off that uh, whole, I, I guess, uh, you know, momentum for me to go forward with other payments for games. That's why maybe earlier on, when you asked me how much I think Canadians spend a year just on the games, I said fifty or sixty dollars. That maybe is just clouded by my own uh, kind of lame experience uh, just in the recently. So, so we've looked at what what influences what people pay or buy or, or, or what games that they choose in Canada. Because a lot of times people say, oh, it's the hype. You know, there's all these ads or something. I don't know what drove you to, to buy this specific game. Um, but I think that's an interesting factor. When we, when we talk to people in Canada, they said that they're actually influenced. 68% of people said it's friends and family. Hmm. So on, on, you know, should you buy this game? Should you play this game? followed by gaming forums, people they know on social media. So it's actually people trust other people, other Canadians, in terms of giving them good recommendations on, on what to play uh, and what to buy and what to spend their money on. And it's not so much um, hype or an ad or something like that that you see or, or a, a streamer or someone on social media. Um, 
I thought that was really interesting because it's still very much word of mouth in terms of, um, you know, of, of what people are going to buy and when they're going to spend money on it. Okay, well, it's actually funny you bring that up because the last game that I got into, uh, it's it was solely because of word of mouth. It, it was a friend of mine got me into it. I got another couple friends into it, and then they got other. So it's just it did really spread, and we've got like uh, all of our usernames. Uh, you can see who's playing at any given time. So it's kind of funny that you bring that up, and that was actually my my most recent experience in gaming too. Yeah, we we um, you know, when we talk to to, to people, my stepson is a huge uh, Minecraft player, so he streams every weekend. He's got a sign on his door, you know, "Don't disturb" and whatever. And it's interesting. I talk to him about you know games that he wants to pay for, um, and then then but also as a streamer, getting paid if you're a content provider. So he's a he's just someone who likes to game, but he's also seen that. Um, part of the enjoyment for him in playing is streaming for other people. And, you know, do you get donations and, and how are people donating to you? And that's actually a, an area in Canada that um, has a lot of room for growth. Um, about half of the people that we talk to that stream don't get paid for the content that they stream. So we flipped it around and we talked to people who in Canada do watch live stream. And it's only about 21% of people that we talked to have watched a live stream um, or video game content online. So that sort of that new area you talked about for monetization is something that's, that's relatively new and untapped in Canada. Um, but I think from a, from a, not only a personal gamer perspective, if you like to play the game, but looking at how you can enjoy the game in a different way by becoming a streamer, has a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, and there's nothing I would love more than for me to figure out a way uh, to stream me at my own desk, just working on stories, and uh, you know, people would you know pay money to watch me. But uh, unfortunately, I don't think that there's much of a market for uh, a reporter to do this. But uh, Melissa, I, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. That's Melissa O'Malley, Director, Global Initiatives at PayPal. And stay with us. We are speaking next with Catherine Hayashi. She is the CEO of Triumph Innovations, and she's going to discuss the potential for groundbreaking new cancer treatment. Triumph. It is Canada's Particle Accelerator Center. It's based right here in Metro Vancouver, and it's pursuing a new strategic partnership with Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. The deal centers around the commercial production of a rare medical isotope that could help with new cancer treatments. We are joined now by Catherine Hayashi. She is the CEO of Triumph Innovations. That is the commercialization arm of Triumph. Catherine, great to have you on the show today. Thank you. So I, I don't want to mess up the name of this medical isotope. I'll, I'll put all the pressure on you, but tell me a little bit about what makes it so special and, and what this deal really means between uh, these two organizations here. Well, Actinium-225 is a, uh, a medical isotope that um, appears to be very effective at killing cancer cells without doing much damage to surrounding healthy cells. Um, it is an isotope that has a very short range of action, so it, it is very lethal, um, but only within a few cell widths. Uh, so it, it is a great um, isotope to use for treating cancer. It also has quite a short half-life, so it doesn't stay in the patient's body for very long. 
And take me through it a little bit because we are in a bit of a special situation here in Canada with regards to access to medical isotopes, but also the technologies that are coming out of, say, Triumph. Tell us a little bit about what makes this strategic partnership special going forward. Well, actinium-225 is obviously a very promising isotope, um, but currently the annual supply of that is limited to enough for only a few hundred patients. So it's not really a viable therapy um, to move forward with, even though it's incredibly promising technology-wise. But we realized at Triumph that because we have uh, the largest proton beam accelerator in the world and and one of the most powerful ones, that with some modifications, we would be able to make um, hundreds of thousands of doses of this isotope, making it widely available over time. Yeah, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so, so, so coupled with, uh, but of course, we um, don't have the processing capabilities on our own uh, to to develop this isotope. So, uh, a partner like CNL is really ideal. Um, they have very complementary facilities and expertise um, that the ones that we would need to actually uh, produce the quantities of isotope that would be needed to make this a, a widely available therapy. And and putting everything in perspective for our listeners, though, I I mean, what kind of quantities are you looking at uh, with regards to production? Uh, Again, um, the current demand is is really uh, at a very early research stage. But over time, um, you know, the the data that people are very excited about is in prostate cancer. um, But we believe that this um, isotope would have applications in in a wide spectrum of cancers that are currently very hard to treat. Um, so we believe that the long-term demand um, could be in the hundreds of thousands or even millions of doses. The thing that I, I think everybody's going to be interested in here is what exactly this commercial production would involve, because there's very much kind of a reciprocal relationship that would go on here. But tell us a little bit about some of the stuff that's coming out of Triumph, where you guys can really step in and display your expertise here. Um, Because we have a a very large and powerful cyclotron, um, we can produce isotopes in a way that um, other uh, other, uh, centers can't. Um, Some of the uh, traditional ways of of producing isotopes are using nuclear reactors. So we're using a a very different process. And because of the the power of the beam at cyclotron, uh, at Triumph, we can produce a very large quantity of these isotopes. Well, it's a very exciting uh, news that's coming out today. And maybe if we kind of uh, broaden the picture out a little bit, uh, tell us a little bit about, I guess, Triumph Innovations with regards to your mandate here, because you're looking at all the great breakthroughs that are coming out of this uh, accelerator center, the Particle Accelerator Center. What is your role at Triumph Innovations when it comes to getting, I guess, commercial products coming out of it? So Triumph Innovations is the business-facing side of Triumph. We are there to work um, to connect the private sector to the infrastructure and expertise at Triumph. Um, We have a professional business team that is used to dealing with the type of contracts and agreements that industry partners um, would be interested in. So that is our role. How do we um, make the incredible infrastructure and expertise at Triumph um, more widely available to uh, new opportunities working in collaboration with our industry partners. 
I've uh, spoken to some of the companies involved here, and it's very cool stuff that's coming out of Vancouver specifically as well. Tell us a little bit about kind of some of the applications. If you look at cyclotrons here, you have one of the largest, you know, that's known, but there's also like the ability to have these, I guess, SUV size cyclotrons that would be very helpful for a lot of hospitals. Yes. Um, so many hospitals already have small uh, cyclotrons in their basement where they can produce um, isotopes for patients that are either very short-lived or um, hard to get or hard to transport. So we actually have a, a spin-off company that has a technology that would allow um, cyclotrons in hospitals to produce the isotopes that they need rather than relying on getting them shipped from um, reactors or even large cyclotron centers like Triumph. And that's, I think, one of the big challenges ahead with regards to this industry is just, uh, you know, distribution issues, production issues. Uh, those are the obvious things to me. When you look at what is going on right now, what kind of challenges do you think, I mean, need to be overcome to see, I guess, an explosive growth going forward? Um. You know, I, I think that there is a real interest in medical isotopes that's growing. Uh, I think it really is a new frontier for medicine, um, and we're seeing a lot more interest um, in terms of uh, researchers, in terms of investors, in uh, a new type of therapy that will open up uh, new possibilities for both uh, researchers and patients. I'm curious, though, I mean, how does the Canadian market fare versus, say, the international market? Because I know one of the spinoff companies, they've had success, you know, in, say, Europe. I'm wondering what the, how the Canadian market compares for, I guess, just interest in these kinds of uh, technologies coming out, but more specifically the medical isotopes, of course. Uh, well, I think the market, you know, Canada is a relatively small market. Um, and, but I think that one of the interesting things about Canada is on the research side, we're really doing um, very interesting, cutting-edge things. Uh, we, you know, we have uh, people like Triumph, and we also have people like Chalk River. Um, and the cancer agency in Vancouver, the BC Cancer Agency, is really uh, one of the leaders in this uh, area as well. So they are bringing very innovative therapies uh, to Vancouver that you see only in a few other places in the world. Uh, and they are uh, an important partner of ours in developing this Actinium 225 initiative. Do you think Canada has developed a bit of a reputation at this point as a leader within this sector? I would say we're very proud to be a, a leader in this in this area. I think when you have um, Triumph and the Cancer Agency and uh, CNL all located in Canada, that positions Canada to really be um, a leader in this, like a, a true leader, uh, and which something we're very proud of, considering that you know Canada is a relatively small player in many other other aspects of the world. Yeah, you know, I I, I risk saying another cliche, but I, I I feel as if you know there, there's nobody out there that hasn't been touched by cancer in, in some way or another. So it's kind of a very special thing to know that we have a lot of these treatments that could be developed through technology that is, you know, centered here in Canada. And uh, Catherine, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, thank you. Oh, and also, I'm not sure if um, if you'd heard about this, but we actually participated in a, a documentary on Actinium 225 uh, produced as part of the Story Hive um, with, uh, with Avocado Films. And it really is a great introduction to the potential of Actinium 225 
um, how it's produced at Triumph, what role we can play. Um, there's interviews with um, nuclear medicine specialists at uh, the cancer agency and at uh, Lionsgate Hospital. Um, so I think that's a great primer if anyone's interested. And, and if anybody is interested, Catherine, what's maybe the easiest way to track down this documentary? Um, there is a, a link on our website and also um, it's part of the Tell Us Story Hive competition called The Rarest Drug on Earth. Excellent. So, uh, Catherine, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you. That's Catherine Hayashi. She is CEO of Triumph Innovations, and that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening. You can find our archives on iTunes or go to Stitcher. You can also find our news stories at BIV.com or just wait for that uh, good old-fashioned print edition. For now, we'll be back next time.